Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. My name's Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. Good morning, church family. And if you have a Bible, please open it with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be continuing our journey through the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. A new king has come. There's a new sheriff in town. What is life with him like? That's what we're looking at. So I'm going to read verses 13 through 16, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to say, This is the word of the Lord, and you can reply, Thanks be to God. Then we're going to pray and ask for his help. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 16, 13, 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for his help. Father, We just saying a lot of truth about what you've done for us. Father, I thank you that the gospel is good news. It's a message about who you are and what you've done for undeserving people. And Father, I pray as we look at this message about salt and light and what it means to follow you into dark places, I pray that we would be open to where your spirit leads. ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. See John Miller. He's a pastor and an author. And he gives seven characteristics of what he calls an ingrown church. Seven characteristics of a church that's a bubble. It's introverted, looking in, not extroverted, looking out. Cares about its own needs, not the community. I'm going to read those seven characteristics to you. Tell me if any sound familiar. Characteristic number one of an ingrown church, tunnel vision. Miller says that an ingrown church is afflicted with a kind of tunnel vision that limits its potential ministry. This is trust in the visible human resources a church has on hand rather than in the promises of God. Characteristic number one, tunnel vision. Number two, Group superiority. Many ingrown churches become egocentric out of fear of extinction and wind up focusing on one aspect of their church culture that makes them unique. This allows them to feel good about themselves while finding fault with other churches in the area. That's group superiority. Characteristic of an ingrown church number three. Extreme sensitivity to criticism. Extreme sensitivity to criticism. Fear of extinction creates anxiety over any negative criticism and conflict in the church. This encourages a church to avoid issues it needs to address. Extreme sensitivity to criticism encourages a church to avoid issues it needs to address. Number four, niceness in tone. All these things mentioned above lead to a niceness in tone, particularly among leaders. Sorry. That creates a safe place to exist. Safe and comfortable, as opposed to walking in lockstep with Jesus as he leads his people into the world. Number five, the Christian soap opera. Have you seen the Christian soap opera? An introverted church tends toward a form of self-destruction via gossip. 
All offered in a nice tone, of course. Number six, confused leadership roles. In the typical ingrown church, leaders do not function as pace-setting examples, but as sweet but saltless friends. A pastor is expected to do all the work in this church without challenging and without equipping members to participate in the mission of God themselves. Number seven, misdirected purpose. An ingrown Ingrown churches' sole purpose has to do with survival, not with growth through conversion of the lost. This survival mentality robs the church of optimism and consumes her time with inward activity. That's the inward-facing church. Jesus' message about salt and light is simple. It's not difficult to understand. The mission of God's church has always been outward facing. From the opening pages of scripture, we see God going forward, going out. The Trinity creates people spreading God's glory. The church's mission has always been outward focused. And now Matthew holds up Jesus' words about salt and light as a mirror for us to look at. What do we see in that mirror? Church, here's my concern. My concern is that when we look in that mirror, we see an inward-focused church. And when I say we, I'm not speaking French, as you learned last week. I mean us. Me, you, both of us. An inward-facing church. Compass Church turns 50 years old next year. That's amazing. That's 50 years of God's faithfulness. That's 50 years of lives being transformed. That's 50 years of community being built, of needs being met. It's amazing. I don't want to undermine that in any way. But in any church, there are ebbs and flows in their life cycle. And here is my concern for us. Us. I've been here long enough. I'm part of the problem. My concern for us is that we are a bubble. We are an inward-facing church. We're too safe. We're too comfortable We are an inward-facing church. And this morning, Jesus wants to pop the bubble. Jesus wants to rescue us from this so-called safe harbor. The safety of just looking inside. And he's pushing us like a mother cardinal pushes her, her chicks out of the nest. He is calling us into a dangerous world. But it's for our good. And that's the only time I'll ever speak of the cardinals positively here, okay? (laughs) He's calling us into danger. But he's calling us not just into danger, but he's calling us into a dark world and he's going there with us. And the question we have to ask as a church is this. Do we trust him? It's so easy It's so easy to just be inward facing, to just insulate the bubble. But Jesus is calling us out. And it's actually super freeing outside the bubble. It's amazing. We rob ourselves of this amazing identity Jesus has given us if we just look inward. If we keep, if we keep pushing this inward-facing church forward. Here's a concern I have, and I don't want to sound like I'm just concerned about survival. I'm not. I want to push us toward thriving. But we were in an elders meeting, and one elder pointed out something he saw. He said, I look around, and sometimes I feel like we're just getting older. We just age and age until we close our doors because there's no one left. 
Here's what Jesus is calling us toward. He's calling us to something way better. He's calling us to not just be a church where it's come and see, come and see. He's calling us to be a people, a church where it's go and show. Go into the city, go into these dark places and show God's glory. That's what's at stake here. If we fail to hear Jesus' words about salt and light, God's glory is missed out on. This is not just about you. This is bigger than us. This is about God's glory. Will we hear and respond? Or will we stay in the safe harbor of the inward-facing church and die a slow death? I don't mean to sound alarmist at all. But here's what Jesus is calling to. When he calls us to be salt and light, he's telling us where to do that, how to do that. That's the salt part. He's saying, go into these places, go into the world, and he's telling us what to do once we get there. Put God's glory on display through justice. So salt and light function as both the what and the how. What are we supposed to do? Go into the world. That's the salt. How are we supposed to do it? Through works of justice. That's the light. Salt and light are kind of like water and flour. They're two separate ingredients, but once you put them together, you can't pull them apart. And so we're going to look at what salt is, what Jesus is calling us to be as a body. Then we're going to look at what light is, see how we're supposed to do that. And then we're going to see the amazing promises that come with us when we take hold of that identity. We see that Jesus is calling us into danger, but he has our good in mind. And Matthew is trying to help you see you can trust him. You can trust him in the scary places. Church, let's not be afraid. Let's trust God and go. That's the call. Something has to change. And Matthew is showing us how to do it. So let's first look at what we're supposed to do. What in the world are we supposed to do? We're supposed to go in the world. What does that look like? Look with me at verse 13. Here's what Jesus says. You are the salt of the earth. Okay, what in the world does that mean? Was Jesus just like being this random person who was like on this mountainside? He had this crowd to him and now he just needed to get their attention. He's like, you are the uh, brown cushy chairs. I see brown cushy chairs. You're the brown cushy chairs of this earth. No. What Jesus is doing is he's actually pointing to a deep biblical reality. A biblical reality that starts on the opening pages of scripture and shows what God's mission has always been about. That it's always been outward facing. And he uses that with the image of salt. Salt is a cultivator, okay? Think about with me for a second. What does salt do? It does three things, right? It flavors, it preserves, and it purifies. So salt flavors. So if you have a steak, there's good flavor in there, right? And you want to bring that flavor out. So you put salt on it, and salt brings what's good in the steak out. Or if you're vegetarian, the tofu, okay? Brings the goodness out of it. There's a good thing there, and it draws it out. Salt preserves. It holds off corruption. So if you put salt on something, it, has, it will last longer because it's preserving it. Salt can also act as a purifier. It works to undo corruption. All those ideas of seasoning, drawing things out, purifying and preserving, those are all cultivating words. And here's what, here's what Jesus is pointing to. He's saying this, you are the cultivators of the earth. You're the cultivators of the earth. Who was a cultivator of the earth? Adam. This is where this gets really good. This is where this gets really freeing. Jesus is breaking down the walls of an inward-facing church, and he's saying this. Who you are as a worker, as a person, the way you've been wired and what you do in the world participates in the kingdom of God. Your work matters to God. What God was doing through Adam The glory of God that was in Eden wasn't meant to stay in Eden. It was meant to go all over the planet Earth. The whole, it was meant to spread to the whole world. He says that right out of the gate in Genesis 1, 26 and 28. He says, fill the Earth. 
Take what you're experiencing here and go public with it. Go, just take over the world. We also get that from Psalm chapter 8. In Psalm 8, the psalmist is meditating on man and God, how God made man. And he gives this amazing meditation. He says, he says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Why? Because you made man. And you set him up over all the fruits of your labor. Man was supposed to cultivate planet earth out of a worshipful relationship they had with God. There was oneness with God in the garden. And they were supposed to, from the love they received, go imitate their father. They're participating in the family business. Who's God? He's a creator. He makes good things. He makes that. That's good. That's good. That's good. And now he's saying, hey, participate with me in this creative work. Go work. See, if we, don't, if we don't get this, we leave a huge part of who we are outside these walls. Like work, yeah, I mean, I guess I like math. I'm a, you know, I'm an accountant. That's what I do. But we don't see, if we fail to connect how that connects to the kingdom of God, we rob ourselves of experiencing his pleasure in our work and we have no idea what we're actually doing in our jobs. Here's what, here's what he's saying. Look, salt, think about salt for a second. You're the salt of the earth. Salt isn't salty for its own sake. Salt doesn't get to experience the great flavors of a beautiful piece of meat and that's drawn out of it. Salt is salty for someone else. So Jesus is saying this, go into your workplaces, go into the places that you've been called to live, to put, go into your world to put God's glory on display. You're going back into your world. The author David Dark, he was once a youth pastor in Nashville. And he had this experience with one of his youth students. Uh, he hopped in their car with them. And the youth student turned on their car. Okay, and do you remember like CD players? When you had a CD player on, whatever you were playing before would just blare out. And so the youth student turns on his car. And do you know what starts blaring out of the speakers? Slipknot, okay? Now, Slipknot is, for those of you who don't know, when I was in high school, Slipknot was like this death metal band. They wore scary masks, and it was just like, it was scary, okay? And so the kid turns on his car, and that's what blares out of the speakers with his youth pastor, of all people, a pastor in the car with him hearing this. And the kid freaks out, and he gets really anxious, and he turns it off. And he's like, "Uh, I'm really sorry, man. I, I don't know what that was. That's never happened to you? You never had someone break in your car just to listen to music? <laughs> so David was just sitting there thinking with him for a second. And he didn't say anything. And he said, hey man, you know, if you like that, don't you think there might be a reason behind that? Like, like don't you think there's a way that you're wired that, that there's something good about it? Why are you embarrassed about that? That's what Jesus is doing for us when he talks about we're the salt of the earth. If you like numbers, if you, if you are creative and expresses this way, don't you think there's a reason for that? And when we, when we start to see what, what God wired us a certain way, and when we can take hold of that and live as who we are and live into that, we can experience his pleasure and spread his glory in our offices. I and mean, that's amazing. Like, so you don't have to feel guilty about being a good salesperson. You love conversations. You love listening, hearing things. Oh, we're going to come back around to that later. And you shouldn't have said that because because you said that, now you're leaving here with a new car. All right? That's not bad. I mean, if you're doing it wrong, it can be, can be bad. I don't want a new car. So that's not bad though. That's how God wired you. And work done well points to the glory of God. Work done well creates a sense of transcendence. I remember the first time I saw work done really well, it took my breath away. I, visiting Montreal for the first time, walk into the Basilica of Notre Dame. And it's amazing. It's this huge building, work. Somebody built that. And you walk in and it, it just hits you, the sense of, people can make this? That's amazing. And it, it made me feel this big. Why? Because that's work that reflects the Creator. God made work and it's really good. See, here's the problem though. Here's why we don't feel like that. It's because we're fallen. We now twist our jobs. 
we get our significance. Oh, I matter because I'm a good salesperson. And as David Foster Wallace has pointed out, things that you move to the center stop satisfying you. So some of you, you've moved your jobs to the center of your identity. I matter because I blank. And you know that's true because if you lose your job, you lose yourself. Jesus right here is freeing us from that. You're, yes, you're, you're, you matter. You are wired. And, that, and, and living out a certain way puts God's glory on display. Puts a creative God who loves his creation. Look, seven is a number of completion. And seven times in creation, God says, this is good. And on the seventh time, he actually says, this is really good. Creation is good. And when we see that and we put it in its proper place, when we start to work as worship, we put God's glory on display. And you reach people that I can't. Look, you work with people who are like you. I've had the privilege of hanging out. There's several of you in here work in the healthcare profession. And I realized like, oh wow, I don't think like any of these people. I am not a science nerd at all. Wow, I feel really dumb, right? I'm not wired that way. You are. And God's saying, hey, I'm going to put this new creation person in this office. Why? Because it's go and show. This cultivation, this is all a gift. This is God's mission going out into your offices. You need to break down the division in your mind between sacred and secular. That's what's, that, that, that can't, that's going to keep us forever an ingrown church. If the goal is just to get people in here and get them involved in programs, we're going to miss the point. But if the goal is to equip you to go out into your offices and not to be the not to be that employee who's handing out tracts while they should be working, not talking about that, but to do work well and to be winsome and to win people over through your character and through your work. That puts God's glory on display. He's chosen to be glorified that way. That's the what. That's the, that's the what, what are we doing here? We're going into our worlds we're going into our worlds. And what are we doing once we get there? We're being lights. So once we get there, we can show his glory in our world through works of justice. Now, where do I get that idea of showing his glory in our world through works of justice? Look with me at verses 14 through 16. You're the light of the world, light. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people put a lamp under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and give it, uh, it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Just like with salt, Jesus was pointing back to a very rich biblical idea. He's doing the same thing with light. Israel was always called to be a light to the nations. And... and they weren't. Think about Jonah. God says, hey, go to Nineveh. Leave the safety of Israel. Go to Nineveh. And he's like, no thanks. I got, I'm just not going to do that. And what does God do? He moves heaven and earth to get him there. This outward facing posture has always been God's intention with his plan. And he often talks about it when he talks about light. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. Matthew just got done saying that in chapter 4, verses 12 and 16. Listen to this. Uh, When that time that Jesus heard John had been put into prison, he went to Galilee. Okay? Galilee in Isaiah is called Galilee of the nations. So there's Israel, then there's the nations. So Galilee is where the nations live. Why does he go to Galilee? Verse 14. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, uh, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Here it is, Galilee of the Gentiles. So not our tribe, the others, right? What do we want for the others? The people living in darkness have seen a great light. That is a near identical quote to Isaiah 
of another passage as well that Isaiah picks up on later. He says this in Isaiah 60. He says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. He's talking to Israel. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth. Thick darkness is over the people. The Lord rises upon over you, and his glory appears over you. Nations, the Gentiles, those outsiders, will come to your light. And again, one more Isaiah passage. He says this, listen to me, my people, hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nation. My justice will become a light to the nation. All that, that snowball, Jesus picks up when he says this, let your light shine that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. The Old Testament talks about this idea of, they use the word justice. The New Testament calls it good deeds. And for thousands of years, people have struggled with both of those ideas, both those concepts. The good deeds, Martin Luther, when he read this passage, was like, hey, saying like that we were created to do good deeds, that sounds kind of legalistic. Oh, I'm wrestling with that. And nowadays, we struggle when we say, hey, you were created to do justice. I know, because many of us have had this conversation, that when I say you were created to do justice, you need to pursue justice, that makes many of you nervous. So let's just talk about that for a second. We live in an age where everything is politicized. Everything. Every single thing is politicized. And so when I say justice, I sound like I'm promoting, some of you said this, it sounds like I'm promoting like a liberalism that uh, doesn't care about morality, sleep with whoever you want to be, you be you, we're not here to rain on your parade, but you care about justice. And so when you say that, I hear all of that coming into that conversation, and so it makes me uncomfortable. Maybe could you not use the word justice? I hear you. I recognize that concern. And no, I'm not going to stop using the word justice. Here's why. Here's why. The word justice is what God is all about. Listen to this. Psalm 89, 14. Justice is the foundation of your throne. Here's why we wrestle with this idea of justice. We live in a totally different context from when Jesus originally preached this. Jesus preached this in a pagan culture, and you and I don't live in a pagan culture. I know it can feel like that sometimes, but we don't live in a pagan culture. We live in a post-Christian culture. So Jesus preached to a pagan culture, but we live in a post-Christian culture. A pagan culture is way different than a post-Christian culture. Here's a pagan culture. Uh, Jesus lived in a time, uh, or is preaching, before Christianity explodes, right? Kind of obvious. He is... Jesus, he's Christianity. There's no Christianity on the scene yet. We live in a time where Christianity has exploded and is now in decline. So here's what happened. Think about Anglo-Saxons. Not white people, but like the actual group of people from which white people descended, like Anglo-Saxons, okay? A very notoriously violent group of people, okay? If you bumped into an Anglo-Saxon, they, and you offended them, they wouldn't just kill you, they would kill you and your clan and anybody who liked your clan. So when the gospel goes to the Anglo-Saxons, uh, the message of forgiveness, care for the least of these, loving the poor, is wildly different. It's totally radical. And the, God, the, the reason we love the poor is because we were poor before God. Grace, also wildly radical. What in the world's happening? And so the gospel transforms the culture. Fast forward, hundred years, couple hundred years, Christianity has exploded in the West. Nearly everybody's a Christian. And we have all these Christian values and we use all these Christian phrases uh, because of the crazy rich heritage that Christianity has had in the West. Just look at a map. Look at a map and try to find us any, any state and be like, yeah, that's, that's a biblical thing. That's a biblical thing. Yeah, if there was no, if there was no Christianity, this town would not be called Bethlehem. There's, it's all over the map, right? But here's what happened. Christianity has been on the decline in the West. Christianity has been on the decline of the West, but not necessarily Christian values. Here's what happened, as Tim Keller says. They plundered Christianity, secular people, and they took the values and threw out God. So here's... 
justice, caring about the poor, right? You don't learn that from evolution, okay? Survival of the fittest does not naturally lead you to say, I should fight for the rights of these vulnerable people. It just doesn't, okay? And if you're here and you're secular, I'm really glad you're here. Love you. You keep us honest. Thank you for being here. But that's just something you've got to deal with, okay? That's just not, just, it's not a natural jump. Where did they get that? Christianity. Here's the thing, though. As other pastors have said, the secular West has climbed up a ladder and has looked down and said, oh, we, there's no lower rungs here. We just did this all ourselves. And so they have these values that they took from Christianity and they use our language and they mix it with all other kinds of values. That, that, that's, a, that's something we have to talk about. But look, that actually provides an amazing, like an amazing way to be a witness. If someone, if you meet someone and they care about justice, they care about caring for the vulnerable, caring for the least of these, you know what you can say? That's the image of God in you. The Bible has an answer for why you care about that. The Bible actually cares very much about that. Where did you get that? And you can start a conversation, a dialogue. And look, the Bible is uncomfortable. It's totally comfortable making you uncomfortable. It's trying to challenge your worldviews. Don't think that talking about justice means I'm trying to drag you toward like a socialistic worldview. Like, okay, we were an inward church. Now we're a socialistic church. Craig succeeded. That is not what I'm doing up here, okay? Please, please, if you don't hear anything, just hear me say that, okay? It's not my goal here. Justice is the foundation of God's throne. Psalm 89, 14. God's glory is when he goes public with who he is. The word glory has to do with this idea of weight, Glory is weight. When you feel God's glory, you feel his weight. You feel how big he is. Do you know how we put his glory on display? Justice. We love the least of these. We don't steal from our employers. We don't, we don't take advantage of people. Why? Because we had nothing. And a God who's found the foundation of his throne was justice came and gave us everything. Don't rob yourself of that because you're uncomfortable because we live in a time that's super politically charged. You need to, as again, Timothy Keller says, you need to break your mind free of just thinking in things in left and right. Okay? When we talk about justice, that frees us to start thinking about things a little bit differently. So for example, you're watching TV and you see, you, you know, something's on TV. If you're thinking of, oh, I need to do good deeds. I need to just be about good deeds here. You're not necessarily going to be, you're just going to be saying, oh, I just don't watch anything super bad. But when you think about justice, that includes both active and passive things. So now when you're watching a show, you need to say, hey, this show seems to be, exploiting someone's vulnerabilities. This show has said, hey, we're dangling the carrot of fame in front of you and we'll see how ridiculous you'll dance to get that carrot. Would a person of justice be entertained by that? Justice gets specific and it creeps into every area of your life. And when we are people of justice, we don't earn anything from God. We're putting his character on display and we're we're showing people what he's like. And look, the reason that Christianity is in decline in the West is because we haven't done that. We've been hypocrites. We've chased after power. And what we, we, lost, what we traded to get it was our identity. This is an amazing identity that Jesus is giving us here. He's saying, you are the light of the world. These people hadn't moved two feet for when Jesus first started talking to them. Think about this for a second. He, he's healing them. He sees a crowd coming near to him. He draws them up to this mountainside. He says they're blessed. Just right out of the gate. Blessed, 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 blessed. He's showering God's favor and grace on undeserving people. They haven't moved. And then he says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. That isn't because we're awesome. That's because Jesus in us is awesome. 
Think about how amazing this identity is. Here's what he says. You are the light of the world. In Matthew chapter 4, who was the light of the world? Jesus. He was the light of the world. And now he's saying, you're the light of the world. That's amazing grace. We haven't done anything to deserve that. But he now resides in us, changes us, and we now, not us, Jesus in us, is awesome. And so we can put his glory on display by caring about those things. And look, light shines in darkness. It's a dark world out there. And Matthew has already kind of set the tone for what happens when people go into that dark world. He says in the Beatitudes, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Okay, here's what we're looking at. Go into that world. And it's kind of like, uh, do I have to? Nobody wants to suffer, but that's how we put God's glory on display by choosing to suffer for this dark world. And now we're left with that decision point of, do I really want to leave the nest? And so here's what Jesus does next. He burns the nest to the ground. And not because he's mean. The invitation that Jesus is giving is saying, hey, trust me. Trust that Jesus has your best in mind when he sends you into your world. Do you trust that he has your best in mind when he sends you into your world? English snobs, I'm very sorry for this sentence. Okay? I just want to say that out front. It is not a great sentence. But here we go. What you do flows out of who you are. What you do flows out of who you are. Who you are flows out of what Jesus has done for you. Told you it wasn't a great sentence. Let's start over. Let's hear it again. What you do flows out of who you are. So it's not, oh, I messed up. I'm such an idiot. It's like a police officer who sees danger. They just kind of run into it. What you do flows out of who you are. But now for the Christian, who you are flows out of what has been done for you by Jesus. You are the light of the world. Lights have to shine. Any parents in here? When your kids leave a room and they leave the lights on in it, and you just become that frantic, like, oh, I never said I'd be like this, but I'm just like my parents, like, hey, there's nobody in this room, leave the light on. Why is that? Because that's, lights don't, we don't, if we don't need a light, shut it off. Lights exist to shine on things. And Jesus is saying this, you have to shine. That's just who you are. You will be this person, not because you're awesome, but because Jesus in you just naturally does this. And so it sounds like a pretty intense warning. What he says about salt, he says this. He says, if salt loses its flavor, how can it be made salty again? It can't. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. That sounds like a scary threat. It sounds like Jesus is saying, hey, if you don't get on board with this program, I'm kicking you out. That's not what he's saying. And Jerry Seinfeld is going to help us understand this passage a little bit better. Jerry Seinfeld has a joke about Pop-Tarts that he said he worked on for years. I don't think it's a great joke, but here it is. Pop-Tarts. They never go bad because they were never fresh. Here's what Jesus is saying about salt. If this isn't you, you were never really in in the first place. Look, they knew about sodium chloride in that day that you couldn't actually make salt not salty. They lived by the Dead Sea. This is the day of pre-refineries. And so sometimes they'd find things that looked like salt and it wasn't salt. And so what they would literally do is they would just dust it all over the road. And so that way you can see there's a big white road and people would literally walk all over. It had no use but just to be walked on. And Jesus is saying this. You can look like a Christian without actually being a Christian. That's sobering. I just want to sit in that for a second together. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer said about this passage, loose paraphrase, he said, the call is to follow Jesus where he goes or be destroyed, to be trampled on. That's heavy. But here's the thing. This is coming not out of our own power. I'll follow Jesus. I'll just, okay, I want to be saved, so I'll work my way to this effort. I'm just going to buy my own bootstraps, white knuckle it. I got this, Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says as he sends people out. This is amazing. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify who? Your Father in heaven. He's reminding them of verse 9. They will be called the children of God. Jesus is not sending you out or telling you to go to scare you. This is not a gotcha moment. What he's doing is he's trying to encourage, hey, it's suffering out there, but this is who you are. You just have to do it. There's no option. We're not, we're not fresh Pop-Tarts, okay? We can't stay in the nest. We have to go. This is what we have to do, and it's hard. But who's with us? A father in heaven. This is not coming from a mean, judgmental God who wants to have a gotcha moment. This is coming from a loving, generous, careful father. Look, there's real fear in not going. Look, I mean, there's... So many churches, so many nonprofits, so many mission organizations that had this desire. They're like, we're going to go into the world. We're going to go into these dark, broken places. And now they look nothing like how they originally started out. I'm not trying to throw shade, but the YMCA is a great example of that. They were the Young Man Christian Association, right? Now, now they're a gym. They're a gym. And that's happening in churches all across this country. Christians are trying to engage the world. They have no idea how to, so they just become like the world and just become a gym. Here's the thing. Light isn't darkness. Light isn't darkness. We are winsome because we are distinct. It is risky. It's very scary to go out into the world. But we have no other place to go. And look, there's also concerns. I see there, there's this whole movement of church growth that can sound like this. Just go get lost people. Get lost people in here. Once we have them here, who knows what we'll do with them. But just we just need more people. It's not what we're saying either. I don't believe at all that being obedient to Jesus when he tells us to be salt and light means that we have to stop loving doctrine. I, I am a theology nerd, okay? I, I do not believe that at all, that we have to stop loving good doctrine in order to reach people. We can be ourselves. We can be who God wired us to be, but we need to go and show. That's the call here. It's an invitation to trust. So where do we go from here? What do we do next? How do we stop from being an ingrown church? I think there's four things I want to encourage us toward. First, confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. Confession for the Christian is not a gotcha moment. Os Guinness once said that confession is possible. We can publicly accuse ourselves. You think I'm bad. Here's all that I've done. Because our sin doesn't identify us. We've been bought and paid for. And as John Piper once famously said, over your head flies a blood-bought banner. No condemnation. So confession is actually an invitation to say, I believe that. So we need to confess and repent. We shouldn't be afraid of looking inside and saying, ooh, I am, I see these seven characteristics in myself. Confession. We need to confess. So I'll go first. 
So I came here two years ago from Los Angeles, which is culturally very different. Okay, I don't know if you've known that. It's a little different. <laughs> and you're just swimming upstream, and you're just, you're just, you are the only Christian you know, everyone else. And then here, you come here, and it's different. A lot of people are Christians, and I just didn't know what to do. I was like, uh, how do we, I know there's a lot of lost people in Columbia, but I'm just not bumping into them. So I would just be like, well, you know, like, I'll just do all these things, and then I'll, I'll, I'll try to do this, I'll try to do that. And then I ran into the, the bylaw machines of our church. You know the bylaw machines. There's a bylaw for everything. And so then it became this excuse. Well, I can't do this because I'm breaking some bylaw, and I can't do that, and an excuse city. And then what happens, I start to identify with number one on here, tunnel vision. I limit the potential of ministry because I just trust in the visible human resources a church has on hand. An excuse city leads to extreme sensitivity to criticism. So in order not to be criticized, I just would avoid it, which led to confused leadership roles. Instead of me being a pace setter and saying, you know what, church, let's go. I'm headed out. Let's go together. I was like, well, I I hope people go. I'm just going to go and we'll just wrestle with that. And if no one goes, okay. It's not pace setting. The buck has to stop somewhere, and I'm saying the buck stops with me. Miller, when he wrote this about church, he recognized that the church was just really reflecting his own character, what he was doing. And I'm saying this, I've not led us in this direction. I have participated in us being an inward-facing church. And I'm sorry. I've not courageously said, hey guys, let's go. Yeah, it's tough. Let's not be scared. Here we go. And that can lead to this niceness in tone. I felt that temptation when you come up here. Oh, like I don't want to say this because that might offend this person who will then, this person, and then this wing of the church leaves, and then it's all my fault, and everybody's going to hate me. Here's the thing. We're done. I'm trusting God. We're heading out where he leads us. You're like, okay, what in the world does that mean? Well, we need to, as leaders, put our money where our mouth is, okay? And so we're going to start taking steps to help us being an outward-facing church. Here's step number one, putting our money where our mouth is. Community groups. We have community groups. Here's what we want to do. Community groups, we want you to throw a party where you just invite all your secular coworkers, all your unsafe friends, just have a barbecue. We'll pay for it. Save your receipts we will pay for you. We want to say, hey, we love this, we celebrate this, we encourage this. So community groups, throw a party, invite your secular friends, we will pay for it. Second, secondly, we want to remove barriers for community groups. We really believe that we, you want to be in community groups. It's a place where you can be, invite your non-Christian friends. It's a place where they can meet us. And so here's what we want to do. We want to say, child care. That's been a barrier for some of you. We're paying for child care as well. We want to remove barriers and we want to help our groups be outward focused. Third, starting on October 6th, there is going to be a Sunday school class that is talking about the elders' vision for helping us grow to be an outward focused church. October 6th. Roger Karwaski told this great story, uh, a little anecdote, and here it goes. There were four frogs standing on a log in the water. Three decided to jump off. How many frogs are left on the log? Four. See, I didn't get that. Okay, four. Yes, there are four frogs on the log. Why is that? Deciding to do something is not the same as doing something. So just because we decided we're going to be an outward-facing church does not mean we all of a sudden magically became an outward-facing church. I imagine many of you have questions about this. What does this look like specifically? How in the world are we going to do this? So we're going to have a class where the leadership is taking ownership. We're saying we're headed in this direction. We're leading over here. And here's what it's going to look like. And so that class starts October 6th. It's going to be in the youth room. I'd love for you to join us. Hear what it looks like for us to say, hey, we want to grow in this direction and we want to go this way. Lastly, the last thing we can do is just remind yourselves this. We are not a bother. We are not a bother. 
Jesus came and right out of the gate, he's offering rescue to people. And when we see ways where we need rescue, Jesus' posture is not, seriously? I really thought you'd have this down by now. Come on, this is kind of a big deal. I think you need to get on board with this. You're not a bother. He loves rescuing his children. I'll close with this story. We are familiar with a church in Louisville that is filled with former strippers and sex workers. Just has a lot of them. Why? Because one day after work, a woman in the church decided to stop at a strip club. And she said, you know what? I bet these girls don't have a lot of love in their life. So what she did was she started bringing home-cooked meals and doing makeup and just started hanging out with them on their breaks and loving on them. That caused a lot of them to like, why are you doing this? What in the world are you up to? Which led to them being able to share the gospel and it led to a lot of women turning, finding wholeness, and starting a new life in Jesus. Okay? That's messy. There's all kinds of questions when you start doing things like that. Is that really safe? Should we be doing that? What's going on? Uh, uh, I don't know. We need to ask those questions and we need to be wise. But here's the thing. We need to trust that Jesus has our best in mind when he sends us into a dark world. Sending us into a dark world is just as much for you as it is for that dark world. And you're being sent not by a mean, mean God who just wants to have a gotcha moment. See, you're weak. You're being pushed out of the nest by a a loving mother cardinal who wants her chicks to flourish. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would help us to grow. Help us to just do the hard work of looking inside where we need to and repenting as we need to and trusting your heart that you don't reveal sin and shortcomings and weaknesses to shame us but to, so that we can experience hope. God, I pray that we would experience that hope as we go out from here, as we have conversations. In Jesus' name, amen.